by just growing that network uh, and you know thinking about building your brand i mean you're just setting yourself up so so much more success no matter what you end up hello and welcome to pillars of wealth creation where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate i'm your host todd dexheimer now let's get to it Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Ferris Musa. Ferris, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about yourself, Todd? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I appreciate you being on. I'm doing excellent. A uh, little bit about Ferris. He's with. He's a managing partner with uh, Disrupt Equity, which is a firm that uh, identifies, owns, and operates multifamily properties, uh, mostly out of Houston. Is that correct? Yeah, throughout Texas and Florida and Georgia. So we're kind okay. of making them another bigger push into Florida. Got it. Got it. Uh, so Disrupt Equity focuses uh, on multifamily and syndicates the equity uh, through their investor pool, uh, helping their investors achieve strong returns uh, from investing in real estate. So anyways, with that said, Ferris, why don't you give our listeners a bit more about your background and then we can dive in uh, a bit more to... Uh, just kind of what you guys are doing. Absolutely. So, you know, like a lot of your listeners, you know, I kind of come from an engineering background, specifically kind of came from the tech world. So graduated computer science, worked at Microsoft. And, you know, after leaving Microsoft, had a software company for a while. And like a lot of people was looking to, at investment opportunities and, you know, wasn't too interested in the market at the time, had done enough of that. And, you know, I ended up getting into real estate. And so my first purchase was a fourplex that coincidentally is about a mile and a half down the road from our, our corporate office here in Houston. You still own that? I know. I sold that about okay. two years ago. Okay. And then, uh, so, you know, that was my first purchase ever before I bought a house or anything. Hmm. Then ended up doing four more transactions in the following six months and realized it just doesn't scale very well. So, you know, kind of from there ended up shifting into apartments started disrupt equity and the, the rest is history so today you know we're obviously based here in houston we've bought uh what 650 million ish of assets um you know we are vertically integrated to have our own management company as well to those first and third party management so it's definitely been a wild ride and never would have expected it kind of get to where it is and you know i think we're just getting started as a company so yeah i love that for just getting started um yeah. so I, I wonder why that is like, why do people, everybody says the same thing. I hear that. I hear it over and over. Like oh, I bought some duplexes. I was going to keep on doing that. But I just found out it just doesn't scale very well. Why do, why do we start at the duplex or the single family house? Like easy, just because it's so easy or. Well, I think people start, you know, I mean, it's easy, get comfortable with the numbers. And I mean, there's value in starting there too, right? Yeah. Like I learned yeah. a lot flipping you know doing some of these things like i got a good sense of what things cost and what some of that effort looks like yeah so, you got to get started right there's something yeah. that you said about just getting started and getting going doing things uh taking action right yeah and for people to. you know if you don't have the money you can imagine borrowing raising fifty thousand dollars most people can't imagine borrowing raising five million dollars right yeah, so true. True. you know then that's probably the other thing it's a, again it's a it's an achievable step to most people's mind and you know and again and there's not a right or wrong right i want to reiterate that i tell people that you can make money in real estate a million different ways yeah there's not a right or wrong way to do it right yeah. there's guys that have, I, I know one guy that owns 120 houses in vegas right you know he's done very well for himself 
yeah. So, I mean, it's just like, you, you gotta get started somehow. Right. It's, it's, I feel like there's gotta be some point though. It feels like most people and I've, uh, some people like this, you know, your buddy in Vegas maybe has success at scaling, but it feels like there's this level where, where did, where did you hit that point where you're like, okay, I just can't keep going. Yeah. So I think the most common levels people run out of money. Right. Mm. Is and that what happened either... to you? And so for me, um, did I run out of money? No, not quite, but I would have at the next deal after that, right? Sure. Like for yeah, me, yeah, yeah. it was, you know, I knew I wanted to do an apartment. I knew it had better numbers. Yeah. And so I like, there was a 99 unit that I knew I could, no, actually I'll take it back. I would have ran out of money at that one. It was a, you know, it was a $5 million purchase, a million one of equity. And I didn't have a million one. I knew between me, friends and other people, I could raise a million one. Yeah. So that gave me the confidence to do that deal. And so, yeah, actually on that deal, I would have ran out of money. Um, for me, it was more about I just didn't really enjoy, you know, just kind of the how much kind of labor intensive it was. Yeah. Right. That, that was and you kind of have to cross that chasm, right, between right. how much labor is it versus what do you get out of it versus, hey, you know what, let's go do something bigger, full time staff. And now it becomes more managing people than it is managing, you know, everything that has to happen. Yeah. Now, that, that was kind of mine. It's like, man, I, I'm not going to be just keep on and be able to do these, you know, couple duplexes, single families. And like, it's just going to take forever to scale. And sure. Could I do all right if I keep going, but for every deal, the margin just seemed like it got tighter. Um, so I'm like, man, it just, just doesn't seem like it's, it's worth continuing. How did you then uh, scale going from the duplex was, what was your first apartment? Deal? So, so was it was big? actually a fourplex was the first one I bought. Then I bought a bunch of houses. Okay. Then, you know, kind of jumped chip to that 99 unit. So the 99 right. unit was, was your, and did you do a syndication or what'd you, what'd you do? With I that? syndicated it. Yeah. 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 And so, you awesome. know, you kind of start to learn and then the more you get educated, right. The more I'm like, all right, this makes more sense to me. Right. Yeah. Forced depreciation is a thing in commercial. I can't do that in houses. Right. Yeah, right. You know, I literally know a guy that bought something like 40 houses in the same neighborhood and sold himself you know, one of the houses at a high price point just to try to show, look, the comps support this new price point. Right? That's about the only way you can do forced appreciation in single family, right? Yeah. So versus commercial, it's, it's part of the business, right? The valuations are based on income. And so it made yeah. a lot more sense to me. And I, you know, I'm just a more of a math numbers inclined guy. And so you start learning more and more and more. And I'm like, all right, this makes a lot more sense to me. Got it. And so take me to where, you know, you go from that 99 unit, then what, what, what do you guys what are you guys focusing on today? What's your, I guess, really, what's your kind of ideal property? Yeah, so today, you know, we have a deal closing in two days, and that's kind of the ideal property today, which is, you know, late 90s construction, two to 300 units, two, you know, two to 400 units, anywhere that's, that space is kind of a comfort deal. Um, and, you know, deals where we can step in, do a, a value add component, but it's not a distressed situation. That mm. 99 unit was a distressed situation. I mean, that was a rough deal, rough area. We completely turned it around. Whereas, you know, an ideal property today is more, you know, step in, inject some fresh capital and, you know, innovate, improve the property, right? And then from that, we can kind of achieve the return profiles that we're looking for. What's, why the change then? Why? Because you said you started that 99, it was a rough area, um, a lot of renovation, big, big turn. And now you've got 1990s. Sounds like pretty easy. It's, it's, 
for us, it's where the market is, right? I mean, you know, ultimately we can go do those value adds too, but the problem is you're doing a lot of work and you're not really getting much for it, right? Too much of the value adds already been priced into most of these deals versus some of the, you know, we like to do the bigger and newer stuff where yes, there's a little bit of institutional competition there, but it's not as kind of a, of a frenzy as some of the value add stuff, right? Because some of this value add stuff, I mean, Perfect example is stuff in Atlanta where the broker will try to pitch you on buying it for 200 a door. You put another 30 a door into it, 30, 40, literally into the deal, whereas yeah. most of our upgrades are 10 a door, right? So you put another 30, 40 into it. Your cost basis is 230. The argument is, well, you're achieving the same rents as the 20-year newer property down the road that you could buy for 260. But I'm like, well, I'd rather pay 20, 30 more and get that new deal versus – Yeah, and cash know, flow right away, right? Yeah, right so not having to do or... this kind of insane – value add and so you know whenever we bought that 99 unit i mean it was priced right like i said it was a it was a 4.1 million dollar purchase and we bought mm. that thing you know 40 a door 30 you know i think 36 a door can't find that anymore that same deal today is going for 120 so you know as a result of that we shifted to just kind of stuff where you can keep your hair a little bit more so yeah it, it makes sense are, are you focused on specific you know area specific demographic is there certain things you're looking for there yeah i mean right now we do look for better deals better locations right it's you know we've done the rough deals rough locations and there's nothing wrong with those but it's ultimately right now it's it's a it's lower risk right and it's just easier to operate and so kind of you get the, the best of both worlds and it becomes more about deal structuring right how do you structure a deal with a capital stack that you know reduces risk for your investors and at the same time can you know create an incentive for the investors that's attractive and so it becomes more about that and less about hey can i reposition the c property in the c area make it a b and a b right you can't control the area but you can definitely control the asset quality yeah definitely definitely you could i I love that i mean you for sure can't you, you can do some things to improve the property certainly you can make the outside look better and maybe your property is the worst and it's creating the crime in the area but typically if the crime is in the area uh, you just can't take the crime out, right? No, absolutely. If it's solely on your property, okay, maybe, but that's usually not the case. You have to buy a path that area, just like that neighborhood I talked about. So, yeah, yeah. Um, explain. You know, a lot of people will love being vertically vertically integrated. You guys are vertically integrated, but you're in multiple markets. Uh, what are some of the pain points? What are some of the difficulties about being in multiple markets yet managing those? Or are you third-party managing out-of-state? So we manage in multiple markets in Texas. We do first and third-party for, you know, we manage other people's properties within Texas. Outside yeah. of Texas, we use third-party management for yeah. now. Yeah. And so, but it's kind of a mixed bag. And, you know, ultimately with management, it's all about the people, right? It's the worst business in the world, but it's a necessary evil, right? In some ways. And it's really about getting people that you trust. Because, you know, really, if you think about it, management is not about managing people, uh, you know, super closely. You're, you have these sites, essentially, right? These remote sites that are all over the place. And you have to trust them to do the right thing and be, you know, be confident, be, you know, trustworthy, right? And do the right things versus you can't, you know, you, you can't be there every day, right? You're not, the goal was not to micromanage them. It's really about putting in an effective leader and trust them to do the right thing, right? And then kind of monitor from there. And so that's what makes it hard at the same time because, you know, you get the wrong person in there and it can very quickly go downhill. And so, 
like I said, it's a tough business, you know, and it, it, I think it's got just a negative stigma to it. And most people in the business kind of, yeah, we almost have to kind of reset them a little bit, right. And change their expectations and, you know, kind of try to train out the bad habits and try to reinforce the good ones. But if you could do that, it becomes a very, very powerful machine for you. So. Yeah. Management is, is definitely difficult. I mean, I, I, we do, th- we hire third-party property management, but we've went through several different companies. And I think, I feel like some of the successes of the the good companies is that they're hiring the right people and they're firing people quickly if needed to rehire the right people. And they're also providing training. Those are the two big things that I see. Um, the differences between the good and the bad companies is just that. Yeah, no, there's a phrase, hire fast, fire faster, yeah, right? And yeah. training is the other thing too, where, you know, we're at the point now where we're, we want to hire on a full-time trainer, right? Because, you know, it's hard to, you get so big and, you know, it grows so fast that you have to get that consistency, right? Otherwise yeah. you don't know who's doing what. And so training is kind of a crucial part of success of management. And so that's where, you know, today we have the regionals that do the training, but unfortunately they don't do a consistent job, right? This regional trains different lists. And now we're, Hey, how do we kind of consolidate that and centralize mm-hmm. training to get the same, you know, economies of scale for everybody. Yeah. Very true. Um, what are three kind of success tips that things maybe that you do on, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, things that have really helped you become successful? Good question. Um, but, you know, I think the first one is getting educated, right? I mean, that's why, you know, I've learned a lot of what I know from listening to podcasts like this, right? Getting out there, be willing to get educated, not go, you know, go in eyes wide open, right? Assume you don't know everything. I think that's a huge one. And, you know, even till this day, as much as we've done, I'm still constantly learning, constantly yeah, asking questions. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter how much you've done, right? That's where, yeah. you know, I enjoy being parts of certain masterminds. I mean, if I go to if I go to a mastermind, I'm the biggest fish. That's a problem. I really want to go to ones where there's bigger fish there and I can learn yeah. from them. And so I think that's a huge one. Always be a student. Right. Yeah. Next one it's is funny, real. It's funny when you're, um, you know, you're sitting there buying your fourplexes, single families or whatever. And you, if you would have looked at somebody that's got 650 million assets under management, you would have been like, Whoa, I'm sure they know everything. And now you're there and you're like, I know nothing. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I just, I just know enough to be dangerous. Right. Yeah, and right, you know, right. that's where my job today is really to make people the best of them. Right. Yeah. You know, it's about hiring people better than me in every situation and help them be the best version of themselves. Right. And, what's jamming them up? What do they need help with? Where do they need assistance? Where do we need to solve a problem? So yeah, that's kind of, you know, the trick right there. So um, yeah. And so then, you know, kind of continue on, you know, so I think education is huge. Uh, Next one is really network, right? Always be networking. Like I, you know, I, I get mad at myself whenever I find me myself stuck in the office for two weeks, right. Versus like, man, I need to be out there meeting people, cutting deals, you know, making partnerships and figuring out what's next. And so I think that's something not a lot of people do well. And, you know, one of my big regrets is whenever I was at Microsoft, just not building my own brand. I mean, I met so many people that liked me, that, you know, trusted me, that didn't know anything about real estate that I could have easily turned into investors, but I wasn't doing real estate at the time, nor do I have a way to communicate that to those people, right? So I think that was a big miss. And I think building your brand is something everybody should be doing because it's a thing that is yours, right? You know, you, you, you go elsewhere, you change positions, you go to a different company, whatever, right? Well, that's something they can take with you, right? So, yeah, that's, I that's, think, yeah. 
That's so valuable. I, I like how you said that even in like Microsoft, when you're there, you could have been building your brand. You could, and, and at the same time, you don't even know, maybe you didn't know about real estate. Maybe that wasn't even part of the cards. And, and, but if you're like listening to this, well, if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking outside the box, right? Yeah. But for people just to build their brand and I'll constantly be networking and build that. It just sets you up for success in whatever way comes, right? It, it doesn't matter that it, you know, you probably at many times didn't think like you didn't think you're going to be a real estate. You probably would have never thought you were going to be in the position you're in. I know I didn't, uh, you know, but by just growing that network uh, and, you know, thinking about building your brand, I mean, you're just setting yourself up so, so much more success, no matter what you end up doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then that's probably a good segue to the third one that I would say, which is you got to always be interviewing and building your bench, right? If you're growing fast, I mean, you know, I'm learning that every day. Like, I mean, we've hired 30 people in the past 60 days. We're probably going to hire another 30 people in the next 60, right? It's hard to get good people. And you have to yeah. always be, always be hiring, always be hiring, always yeah. be meeting people. I mean, heck, I interviewed someone yesterday for a position and I went over to my partner, Ben. I'm like, dude, we need to hire this guy, not in this position, but somewhere in the company, like this guy, we need to bring him on, right? Find good people. And, you know, there's a, there's a book, right? Uh, what is it? Uh, who, not what? Right. And, you know, I haven't read the book admittedly, but I think it's really more about defining what you need and then find the right person. Yeah. Whereas I'm starting to see the value in the inverse, right? And find awesome people, then figure out, okay, where can I put these people and, you know, to grow and, you know, can I set up something that they're content with that they can grow with and vice versa. So, yeah. you know, it's always about just having a good bench of people and that starts to allow things to snowball. Who, not how it's a great book. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. So, so yeah. I was gifted it. It's literally sitting in my bookshelf at home. <laughs> it's a fun book. I mean, it's you you've got the concept down already, so it's yeah. fairly simple. But it's still, it'll bring some stuff to your to your brain. You're like, oh yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Um, what's a mistake that you've made? You've got you guys have done a lot of deals. Certainly, you've made at least one. Oh, we made tons of mistakes. I mean, we still make mistakes today. Um, and I think the biggest mistake we made is probably not understanding the value of reserves up front, mm. right? I'm a big believer. If we screw up a deal, that's me and my partner's fault, not my investors, us. And, you know, we're going to be the first to try to fix it. And it's funny. We had a deal where it was before we created our management company where, you know, we thought we had a pretty good amount of reserves to the point where we we're like, you know what, maybe we just distribute some of this back, you know, sooner than later. And fast forward, the management company completely screws it up, builds up a ton of AP. And then we had the inverse problem where I'm like, shoot, we don't have enough reserves. And so now we've learned it's not about squeezing juice from a turnip, right? Our deals are not about, hey, here's the most efficient way to maximize the dollar on this deal. It's really about understanding risk-adjusted returns. And that's what we try to educate our investors on. We structure risk-adjusted return deals, period, right? We yep. do a lot of things to mitigate risk, a lot of reserves on some of these deals. I mean, we have a, a deal we bought for $11 million that has $1.2 just sitting in the bank for the past year and a half for just fun. And- you know, I've contemplated should we do a big distribution? Well, now that rates have gone up, now I'm like, man, we're sitting great. You know, I'm glad we still have that. So I think the biggest mistake we made, and a lot of people make early on, is thinking two, three hundred thousand dollars is a lot of reserves. Whereas nowadays we're talking two, three, four million dollars of reserves in some of these deals. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I did the same thing uh, or very similar. You know, my first deal, I had these reserves, I thought they were really big. 
looking back, I'm like, holy crap, that, that was tinier amount of reserves. But I thought, like, why do I don't want all this cash sitting around? I don't want to take me put my investors' money to the sidelines and not do anything. So I'm not gonna, I don't need these huge reserves and I won't need them anyways. And same thing. It was like you, you get to a point, you're like, oh crap, I I I'm gonna need more reserves. Like, what's going on here? Um, and so you were the same. What do you what do you do you have like a benchmark that you put a certain amount? Um, no, not like one hard benchmark. I mean, you know, I, yeah, it's really more about the deal and the situation and how much CapEx we're doing. Right. But, you know, if I was to say 10,000 a unit, right. So for a hundred unit deal, it's a million dollars of reserves. Maybe it's a little bit high, but somewhere in that five to 8,000 a unit, just extra reserves is probably a good space to be. And again, maybe we're too conservative, but again, it doesn't really hurt the deal metrics too much. I mean, you know, yes, it waters down returns, but again, we're talking about risk adjusted here. But that is a way that I think people, um, you know, some syndicators will make the deal look better is by having smaller reserves. And it's oh, yeah, for sure. to raise less money. And it's another thing, like if somebody's a little short on their raise, they'll maybe compromise on that reserve. And that's, that's a dangerous Exactly. But the same thing, you know, leverage. I mean, it's funny. I used to think you got to max leverage because mathematically that is the most efficient ways. For us now, we got a deal we're buying in two days. That's 55% leveraged. I mean, yeah. you know, and we, we feel great it. about it. Like, I mean, yeah. yeah, it feels great knowing we can pay the note and have a lot of money, you know, kind of positive cash flow sitting after that. So again, yeah. you know, if I, if I mathematically, I could squeeze a, uh, a 16 IRR and instead I take out the risk and make it a 14 IRR, 13 and a half IRR. Guess what? I'm taking that bet all day. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's it's funny because we've had internally a lot of those same conversations about, you know, LTV and you know, very similar, like not, not very long ago, we would have said, well, let's, let's do 75% LTV yeah. because like we want to, we want to maximize returns. And now it's like, well, wait a second, let's, let's look at the whole deal. 60% that sounds a lot better in a lot of cases. And, you know, instead of a shorter term debt, let's go longer term. Like you look at the risk adjusted returns, it just makes so much more sense taking a lot of that, you know, burden off of you and off of your investors. I want to sleep at night. I yeah. think uh, most of us want to sleep at night. So if we can do some of those things, it just makes so much more sense. Hundred percent agree. I mean, it's just yeah, we like going down leverage on the leverage stack. Now I get it, right? Yeah, Whereas you know, new people to it, but you didn't get it, right? And you know, you thought it was crazy for these groups that go sixty percent leverage, and now we are those groups. And so it's kind of funny to see how things go full cycle and or full circle, right? And you start to realize yeah. there's a lot of reason why people do certain things. Well, and I and I understand it on the the leading edge too, because a lot of these groups, first of all you know, we've talked about a lot of different things, but going to the C-class building, it's a lot cheaper to get into typically a C-class building. So that's why a lot of beginning investors are going to that C or D-class even building. And then going 80%, 75% LTV. Well, they, when you're first beginning, you just can't raise as much money. It's just, that's just how it is. And so a lot of times you're maybe putting a lot more risk on your investors than what you really realize. Um, so I, I get the reason behind it, but if you can at all avoid it, uh, for those who, you know, we've learned some from some of our mistakes, uh, now we're willing to do that 60%, maybe 65% LTV 
we're looking at better product, better areas. Uh, there's a reason for that. And like you said, it's just, you look at some of those companies, you go, why are they doing it? And, not, and then you, you start to do the business, you go, that's why they're doing it. Yeah. And it's not to say there's not a spot for high leverage deals too, but Certainly. you got to really know what you're doing. And if you're working with other people's money, you know, nine times out of 10, it's better to just take the risk out, play it safe than to, you know, go all in. Versus yeah. if I'm doing, you know, if I'm doing it with my own money, a deal that I know very well in an area I know very well where it's like, hey, you know, I can make some real money here. Sure. Yeah, but, you know, it's kind of deals now. we're doing today. It just it doesn't make sense. So, yeah, agreed. So you guys are buying a deal uh, shortly here. Obviously, you're still active in the market. A lot of companies are pencils down or at least like, eh, maybe if we find a smoking deal, we'll go. But we're not in. What makes you confident purchasing a deal right now in this market? And, uh, you know, I guess what, what makes you confident and why? You know, I think that Warren Buffett has a phrase for this, right? Where, you know, when others are fearful, you know, that's the best time to kind of go in. I think ultimately the fundamentals of multifamily haven't changed, right? The cost of capital's gone up, but, fund, you know, the real estate is still very attractive and specifically multifamily. And yeah. so we still have rent growth. Yes, rent growth has slowed down a little bit, but again, you know, it's about getting into good assets, good locations. And really, if you're in it for the long haul, right, we're not buying our deals for the next two years. And as a matter of fact, we're actually shifting our model a little bit into kind of basically what we're calling legacy deals, right? We're buying deals. Hey, how do we get into this deal for the next 15 years, right? Yeah. What does that look like? You know, how do we structure it to where it's a win-win? And so for us, the fundamentals of multifamily haven't changed. And so, you know, continue to buy and the lack of demand has actually made it to where we can find some really attractive deals right now. Yeah. If you're looking at these legacy deals, you certainly have to talk to your investors differently because you're not IRR driven. Certainly you're as much, how are you having these conversations? Cause I can't imagine a 15 year deal. You can say, Hey, we'll hit, we're going to hit a 15 IRR. Um, it's with the years. refi, right? That's really explaining the value of the refi and the value of, Hey, our goal is to get into this deal in five years. You have all your money back and we're just holding on to this deal for with infinite yeah. returns. Right. That's really the pitch and explaining why, why the deal, why the location, the quality of the asset, right? Why it's different than, you know, than the, the, the typical B, C value add that we've done. Yeah. So is, again, it's not, it's not selling the IRR. It's, it's selling the cash flow. It's saying it's selling hey, the story, know, right? Yeah. Right? This is a great location, great product. We're going to cash flow and then we're going to refinance and we're going to ref, we're going to give you all 50%, whatever it is of your money back. And then, and then we'll just hold this. That's that's good. I love that. I love that strategy too. I think obviously I I understand the the flipping of the multifamily and we kind of, we do that as well. Maybe not as much as some people are doing it every two years or year, even they're just like getting in and out of this property so quickly. And I get it. It gets them experience. It gets investors, big returns. It looks sexy. But man, there's something to be said about legacy properties, like what you guys are looking at. And Uh I think there's so much value in that, especially if you look at the longevity of your company, Disrupt Equity. If you guys are doing that or have some legacy product, you're probably going to be a company that's going to have some staying power in the market for the long term. I think a lot of these flippers uh, that are just habitual flippers and don't keep anything 
may not stay, may not be a, a long-term company. I completely agree. No, I want to be that crusty old guy that the brokers chased for 20 years, asking to sell the deal and finally let him sell a deal. Right. That's yeah. kind of the goal. So <laughs> I love that. I've loved that. I've said, I want to be like the 95 year old that goes yeah. and purchases a deal. And, and people are like, what are you doing with this? Well, I'm going to hold it uh-huh. <laughs> for the next 30 uh, years. <laughs> I agree. hundred percent. So, <laughs> yeah. Love it. Um, are you guys seeing anything in the market, in the economy right now that's making you say, maybe we should pause uh, or? Are you-, um, you know, rates are sky high, right? Yeah. Rates will probably continue to trip up slowly. I don't think they're going to go down quickly, right? And so there's concern there, but that's just really just changing how we look at our reserves, right? And, you know, we literally model these deals now where we're buying the big interest cap, modeling all the cash that we need and making sure that if we go to refi that, you know, based on where rates are today, that that DSCR still makes sense and we have enough money to do that refi. And I think a lot of guys are ignoring that piece. People yeah. go in saying, hey, I have a 311. And they don't realize that they're probably not going to qualify for that first extension, let alone they're not going to get the leverage that they think they will on the refi as well, right? But they're going to get a much lower amount. So we, you know, and may probably need to bring cash to closing, honestly. Whereas, you know, we've been very particular on spending the energy to model these. And so it just kind of shifts the deal structure a little bit. But again, the fundamentals are still there. And, you know, if you're buying for the next 10, 15 years, I don't really care too much about what, well, what happens in the next two. Well, that, and, and one of the positives about buying in a higher interest rate environment is if, if you're buying it right now and and it works, then and the rates go down, and then I'm you know sitting beautifully. So. Right, exactly. And the chances of between you know now and the next five years of interest rates going down, I think, are probably pretty good. Yeah, uh, you never know, right? But I think they're probably pretty good. So that that's that's definitely a good point. Um, yeah, it, it just uh, it's going to be an interesting time. Do you have any predictions of of what we're going to see? I think rates will flatten this whole this following year. I'm going to go up a little bit and just kind of plateau. Mm. I don't think there's going to be a drop for this year. I think it's going to roll, you know, roll into 2024 before it starts to probably see a little bit of a drop. So you think we're going to see some, some, some good deals coming uh, anytime soon? I, I think summertime. Uh, I mean, I already see these deals like where guys, you know, have some reserves and they're, they're feeding their deals 70, 80 K a month. And fortunately that can only last for a few, co- you know, a couple of months. So yeah. Yeah, they burn through reserves and then and then what? You know, like you gotta yeah. get rid of a receiver comes in and says, Hey. I completely agree. You know, so I think summertime will be an interesting time. Yeah, agreed. Um are how are you guys? Are you doing anything in particular to position yourselves for that? Um, just doing our thing, right? Continue to just work hard, hire the right people, you know, get our investors just comfortable with different deal structures Yeah, and, you know, continue just to be the guy that the brokers want to call the first guy. Right. So that's kind of us. I mean, you know, we, heck, I was talking to the broker the other day and he says, you know, the thing we have going for us is we've transacted a lot in this environment. Right. And so brokers know that we can perform. And so I think, again, once those deals start to show, we'll probably be one of the first to get those calls and, you know, we move quick, we make it easy. So. Are you at all worried about inventory? I know you mentioned, I think you mentioned Atlanta you guys are in. 
Uh And I just saw something today and I haven't fact checked it. So who knows how accurate it is, but Atlanta uh, had, I think an increase of like 67% as far as new construction in multifamily. Are you aware, are you um, sorry, concerned with any of these markets that are happening? high amount of building or do you feel like the population of Atlanta is just, Uh, I mean, we invest in high population growth markets. Atlanta is a huge population growth, but yeah, I mean, new inventory is always a concern. And you know, the deals that we buy, we do look at how much inventory is coming online. The perfect example is a deal that we chase where, you know, I won't mention the name, but the current owner essentially bought the deal and there was something like 600 units coming online in the market and ended up being 6,000 units. And that's what ultimately caused them to really struggle with that asset. Right. And so being conscious of that and, you know, again, some of our deals, most of our deals are not in the bougie high growth sub markets. Yeah. Right. We're, we're more outside of that. And so you kind of have a little bit of what's the word, a little bit of resilience. Right. Knowing that. But again, it, it can happen and something you have to be aware of. Right. So, you, yep. do, you know, last thing you want to do is to go compete against the lease up. Right. right. <laughs> Those guys will give away the farm. You know, right. you, you know we're we're stabilized. We can't give away the farm. So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Cool. Um, okay, a couple last questions, and then, then I'll, we need to wrap up. So what are, um, what's a favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners? You know, favorite book that opened up my eyes was The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, <laughs> right? That book, you know, it just Gary kind Keller? of, yeah, okay. the guy that started Keller Williams. And so mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, the, if the audience had not read that, I highly recommend it. You know, and it just gives you the overview and kind of the pillars of real estate and why it's an attractive long-term asset class, mm-hmm. right? And my favorite part was just where he kind of does the example of the the couple that makes something like $50,000 a year, right? And how does that couple retire millionaires? And so I think it's a huge eye-opener, great book. Love it. Um, how do you like to give back? You know, so we have a charity called Disrupt Gives, actually, that we launched. And oh, that's cool. We put 25% of our fees into that. And, you know, this year we did over a hundred thousand dollars and next year will be significantly more than that and starting to really scale it out next year. And, you know, it's focused on basically uh, tenant financial literacy and rent forgiveness. And so really trying to educate people because the problem we see is a lot of, there's a lot of rent charities out there, but the problem is, you know, money is given to people and they go back into the same problem, you know, two, three, four, six months later, whereas ours, you know, if we want to forgive it, but we want to essentially educate people and make it a requirement for them to go and complete a certain amount of financial literacy just so they can go back into the labor market well-educated and just, you know, wiser with their money. So it's something we're excited about and something we created actually, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a formal IRS compliant charity, 5063C. Um, and, but I think next year will be kind of the real growth year for that charity. So something super excited about. That's, that's really cool. I applaud you for that. And that's, that's very near to near dear to my heart man i mean the very first rental property i bought was a single family home and uh this young lady moved in with her kids and she was on section eight and she says when i get off of section eight are you still willing to rent to me i said absolutely of course and she said okay good because my grandma was on section eight my mom was on section eight and now i'm on section eight and she said and i'm not going to be on section eight. I'm going to break the cycle. And, uh, she was there. I, I, I don't know where she is today, but during my time that she was a resident of mine, she was never able to break out of the cycle. She ended up, uh, I ended up having to evict her because she couldn't pay her small portion of rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I ended up having to evict her. 
and so it's just sad to see like this cycle repeating. And like you said, there's financial help. People can go get county assistance or section eight or whatever it is, but they're not learning anything and they're not getting out of the habit. Uh-huh. And they're just, they're just taking that their their bad habits and they're passing it on to their kids and their exactly. grandkids and so on. And so, yeah, I, I just, I love what you guys are doing. I think that's amazing. And man, I just, I would love to see that just be something that continues to grow and really truly affect people. No, absolutely. So if we're excited about it and, you know, plan to put a ton of energy into it this next year or two. So that's really cool. we'll kind of see where it goes. Yeah. Last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Oh man, I thought we went through those earlier. So, no, you know, I'll those say can, those can be, you know, it's, it's the same three, man. It's, you know, it's about, I mean, actually I'll, I'll change one up. It's, it's surround yourself by people that are doing what you want to do. I think that's a huge one. I totally believe you are the average of the five people you spend the most time around. And I think that's a huge, you know, fact period. Right. And so surround yourself by people that are doing what you want to do. Second up is always be a student. Again, I think that's crucial. I think you do. There's so much that you don't know, even though you think, you know, yeah. Right. And then, you know, last but not least, is just the network period. So I'll combine those two. It's really the network, both people that you're hiring as well as people you're meeting that, you know, that could be investors and, you know, always be out there. Right. Because a person could be a partner, could be an investor, could be a par- an employee, could be a seller, could be a buyer. Right. Any of these things could be that person. And you just never know who's going to walk through the door. And, you know, the perfect example is my wife just saying, man, did you not get tired of networking or go to these events? You know, and I'm like, well, I just don't know who I'm going to meet. Right. You never yeah. know. And so yeah. I met my partner, Ben, to, you know, at a meetup. And so this stuff works. And, you know, we've, that was many years ago and we've built what we've built. And so always get out there and, you know, I constantly be the person that'll take action. I'll add that in there too. Yeah. You know, don't be the guy that goes to the meetup for five years, just literally to hang out and never takes a step forward. Right. Don't get into analysis paralysis. You know, you have to always be a little uncomfortable. Every deal I've bought, I've always been a little uncomfortable, right? Like yeah. it's never like, Hey, this yeah. deal is a home run, you know, from the get go. Right. You don't really know what you buy until you're 90 days into it. Then you have an idea of, okay, what this thing truly looks like. There's always going to be surprises. There's always going to be issues that come up. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't, you can't A, B, C, it doesn't matter. (laughs) You can't be prepared enough for everything. It just, it just, and that, but that's why we do things certain ways, right? That's why you have reserves. That's why, you know, that's why you, that's why you analyze it and and take and think about the risks that are involved, but you got to take action. Like you said, you have to take action. It's so important. So many people think they got to go big or whatever. And they forget to take, they don't take the action because they are too scared to, because they, whatever, there's multiple reasons, but you just got to get out there and take the action. That's why I never discourage somebody from buying a duplex. Like, go ahead. Go Buy get it. uncomfortable, right? Here, right. If you're uncomfortable, you're probably growing. So that's the big yeah. thing. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, Look, man, I really appreciate the time uh, and just a ton of insight. Love, love hearing the story and, uh, you know, all the all success tips along the way. How can our listeners get in touch with you? They go to disruptequity.com or send me an email, Ferris at disruptequity.com, F-E-R-A-S. Ferris, really appreciate it. Again, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Uh, you too. Thanks for having me, Todd. Really enjoyed it as well. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. 
go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.